Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Reporting earnings today, better than expected, shares up nearly 2%. But interestingly, it said it's showing strength everywhere in providing oil field services, except for in the United States. Joining us now to discuss is Simon Casey, uh, covering uh, all things energy for us as a team leader for our uh, energy team in America. Uh, broadly, north and south and middle. Um, so I want to get your sense, Simon, of how significant this is that Schlumberger, the biggest business of its kind, said that it's seeing less demand in North America. Well, it's a sign of the times. Uh, the US is the world's largest oil producer. It wasn't the lo- world's largest oil producer. If you go back a few years, it's had tremendous growth. But the shale patch is it's under tremendous strain. Uh, producers there are failing to come through with returns for investors. Uh, the capital markets are dried up for shells, for shell producers, for frackers. So they've had to go on a real uh, campaign of cutting costs. They've been cutting jobs. The, the, the pace of drilling in places like the Permian Basin down in West Texas has slowed dramatically. That hurts companies like Schlumberger. Uh, now, this is not entirely new. Slum, uh, Schlumberger said last year, it booked huge write downs for the third quarter, almost 13 billion. A lot, a lot of that was to do with what's going on in North America. They are scrapping equipment. So they're not just idling it, mothballing it, they're sending it to the scrapyard because they say they're never going to use all of this stuff again. We've kind of hit a sort of a peak in shale activity, and it's, you know, we're, ne- we're not likely to see the, the extent of drilling we were seeing in, in recent years ever again. Ever again. So it seems like where the the, the shell business in the U.S., given where global demand mm. is, this is it. So if you're a Schlumberger, you cannot look to the U.S. as a growth market anymore? That's pretty clear from the from what they've been saying this okay. morning, yes. Um, but the flip side of this, of course, is the international business is continuing to rebound. You're seeing a lot of activities in places like, uh, for example, off the, the coast of Guyana, Suriname, South America, Brazil as well. That's a real hotspot at the moment. There's a lot of activity there. Uh, it's coming back in Asia, in in, in parts of uh, Africa as well. So but there's a lot of their international businesses looking really positive. But they, they are, Schlumberger as well, it's, it's based in the US, uh, along with Halliburton, Baker Hughes. It's one of the big three names in this space. It's much more exposed to markets outside of the US. Unlike uh, Halliburton, which uh, is reporting next week, in fact. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, what Halliburton says, because Lumberger has kind of managed to turn the corner a lot quicker, if you like. It's still cutting jobs. It's saying it's still rationalizing. I think the, the, the phrase they used this morning was shrink to fit what is going on in shale. Uh, but you know, it's it's still tough out there, and for for some of the smaller names in this space, um, it's very bad indeed. It's very very difficult because their business is fundamentally shrinking, and it will continue to this year. So there's this theme of peak shale. We've seen peak shale in uh, yeah. a rearview window, correct? Well, let's let's just sort of try and define what we mean by it's peak. Sh- Act, drilling activity production is still on an upward curve. We've seen very literally one or two people have come out and said production's going to peak this year. It's more likely it's going to peak beyond 2020. 
it's definitely the growth is definitely slowing. There's a huge debate within the oil market now the pace that that growth will will continue at this year, and that will ultimately determine the balance of, of global supply because most global supply growth this year is coming from the U.S., uh, which is a dramatic turnaround considering yeah. where we were several years ago when the U.S. wasn't the biggest producer; it was still a net importer. The U.S. is now a net exporter. So this is this whole thing, this whole what we're talking about here, Schlumberger. It goes beyond the company; it goes beyond the oil services. It's about the balance of supply and demand. In the global market. So, Simon, you mentioned some of the smaller players in the oil patch yeah. suffering, which we've certainly heard and read about. Does that suggest more consolidation is likely to occur there? And we might see Schlumberger and Halliburton as net buyers, maybe? Well, there may be some consolidation among some of the smaller, smaller names, domestic players, companies that are based you know, almost wholly down in Texas, Texas, New Mexico. Uh, I would not expect Halliburton or Schlumberger to be picking up assets. I mean, they might pick up some sort of uh, small assets as bolt-on acquisitions. These companies, though, are looking fundamentally to upgrade their technology. Technology is a mantra in so many industries these days, and oil is no different. Oil services is no different. These guys are looking to uh, keep headcount under control, but where they can upgrade the application of uh, particularly of, sort of data management and and use cloud computing to crunch vast amounts of data and figure out what's going on underground and ultimately do the drilling and the uh, the production much cheaper and much more efficiently. Is the theory that we're going to see peak shale uh, in a couple of years at least, uh, is the theory behind that driven by a lack of shale supply underground or is it driven by just the uh, sort of math behind how much it costs to drill versus what what some of these companies are getting it's the math there's plenty of oil there is no longer so any kind of idea of a shortage out there the, the, the shale revolution fundamentally means that there's almost a limitless amount to all intents and purposes but it's it's the economics that are in focus here uh american shale producers have been fantastic at getting huge amounts of shale oil out of the ground and getting them on the markets, and indeed you know, getting to the export markets as well, they've generally been, with some exceptions, they've been terrible at turning it into a sustainable, profitable business that generates free cash flow and returns that cash flow to investors. If you look last year, it was one of the laggards of the, the stock market. There was barely any sort of price appreciation for the, the sector overall. The returns to investors were, were lousy. Uh, they're, they're essentially burning cash. They're burning cash. They're burning through cash. And basically, as I said earlier, the, the equity markets are shut to them. Uh, debt, equi- debt markets are largely shut to these companies as well. And that's forcing them to turn inwards and, and realize they've got a real problem in many cases. And that's why they're furiously cutting back on CapEx. They're doing a lot of meditation and looking into their navels and wondering, right. wither of money, should we keep burning it? Simon Casey, thank you so much for being with us. Simon Casey is the team leader for Energy Americas uh, for Bloomberg News. Stock market setting new highs every day. It seems we've got the consumer remaining quite confident in the economy for 2020. The question is, how is that being felt within the C-suite? Charlie Weinstein, Chief Executive Officer of Eisner Amper, based in New York City, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, has some thoughts there. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. I know you guys do a survey of C-suite business leaders. What did that survey tell you? 
Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Lisa. Great to be here. Uh, this was a very interesting survey, and so we, we host a summit series uh, across all our offices across the country. And as part of that summit series, we host, uh, um, we host a survey. And that survey said to us, 76% of the C-suite and significant investors think that their companies will be more profitable or at least as profitable as they were in 2019. So they see 2020 as a great year. But? So the other side of the survey, very interesting, showed that our business is going to be great. That was the common refrain. There are problems out there. Won't affect us, but there might be an economic downturn. Okay, so how much is this just uh, CFOs being prudent and how much is this genuine concern about a global recession or a localized recession? There is a, there is a concern. So we have Brexit, we have uncertainty over trade and tariffs, we have the elections coming up this Honestly, year. Honestly, but this, this is all like small print that's been there for a while, right? I mean, Yes, it, it has. So, I mean, but, but is it still really like dominant in their thinking? not for their own business. And so for their own business, they are really bullish. Um, I met the other day with uh, uh, an executive who runs a construction company and they're building out, they're branching out into managing real estate for hospitals. And so business, business leaders are looking for opportunities. They're looking to uh, deploy the profits that they've had and they're highly optimistic. One of the economic underpinnings of this economy has been the strong consumer, and that is driven in large part by the fact that uh, most Americans have a job. Uh, most Americans are seeing wage increases, maybe not as much as they'd like. But on the flip side, C-suite executives say one of the biggest challenges is finding people and keeping them. Is that What did your survey work kind of show you there? The survey had two results, um, and they, they go right along with what you're suggesting. One is that they see 58% uh, of the executives see an increase, a significant increase in wages for next year for their businesses. And so uh, getting talent is very difficult and they see the need to increase compensation, quite frankly. The nice thing about that is the consumer drives our economy and if that comes to pass and wages really do start to see an increase, that's gonna fuel our economy even more. This is really important. 58% see materially higher salaries, materially higher wages next year, 2021. Exactly. Okay. 58%. This to me, 58%. This is actually really important because right now, if you look at inflation expectations built into the market, they're more abound. There's this idea that it will never take off. But are you saying that there is a sea change in the sentiment that is different from what we've seen over the past decade that is going to lead to a potentially very different dynamic come next year? I see that there's a possibility that you will see wages really increase. And, but companies are not increasing prices. And so there's that dichotomy that uh, inflation may be driven by increase in prices. Because the margin pressure. Well, it, yeah, okay, but, but, a lot but of this, margin pressure. But, but this sort of goes to the key debate, right? That the stock market is not the underlying economy, right? And the underlying economy lags the stock market. And so if the stock market starts to see a little bit of weakness because of margin pressure, but you have the actual consumer continuing to do better and better because they're actually getting paid more, you know, where does that leave the Fed? Where does that leave markets? You know, it could mean a stock sell-off, but it could mean continued strength for the U.S. I'm just saying. 
upset. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just I'm just extrapolating out what this could actually mean. But you got, you got are... to pay attention in the studio. <laughs> it, it, things move pretty, pretty quick. How about tech technology? When Lisa and I, when we talk to uh, executives uh, across a whole swath of industries, they're all investing in technology. And I'm wondering if your respondents feel like technology is kind of a real opportunity for them, or is it a risk to their business? We always say invest in human intelligence before you invest in uh, technology. And so you need the people to make value, to create value out of the technology. And so technology will only take you so far. Um, you also need to be investing in people. Which sectors were the most optimistic uh, and on the, on the reverse side, pessimistic? So our clients in professional services, um, delivering services, are technology clients, so by far the most optimistic. Manufacturing and distribution. It, it's interesting, even though we've had some trade um, uncertainty over the last six months, year, two years, um, our clients are, are not finding difficulty in sourcing products. And so they're optimistic. They're really optimistic about the potential for 2020. Who's pessimistic? Who's pessimistic? So real estate might be a little pessimistic. I like that he's like whispering. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, we have so many clients in the real estate business. I know. So uh, <laughs> it's a secret. Throw them under the, world, under the bus. <laughs> but they're, they're feeling a little more pessimistic. They are feeling a little more pessimistic. And though uh, um, the way people use space now and the way uh, remote working and all the trends in, in real estate is just something for our real estate clients to keep an eye on. Charlie Weinstein, thank you so much for being here. This is really terrific. Thank Charlie, you, Lisa. Thank Charlie you, Weinstein is Chief Executive Officer of Eisner Amper in New York. I'm really paying close attention to earnings this quarter because when you think about the performance in the market last year, you know, a 30% rise in the S&P, really pretty much all multiple expansion, not much earnings growth last year. So we have to have arguably, if you think this market's going to go higher in 2020, earnings growth coming this year to get a sense of kind of what's driving the market here as we get into 2020. Michael Tiedemann, Chief Executive Officer of Tiedemann Advisors, they've got $21 billion under management. Michael joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive the broker studio. So again, Michael, the S&P earnings, people, analysts are looking for about 10% growth. That would suggest this market maybe can go higher. How comfortable or confident are you in that earnings number? A lot of what's driving the 10% projection are the cyclicals. So you will have to see uh, earn, general growth pick up in the U.S. And uh, we we don't think there's a lot of room for error in these projections. That's, that's our primary concern in addition to the fact that that's largely being priced in or has been priced in over these past few months. So right now, when you talk to clients, are they optimistic? Do they feel like this rally has, has legs and they should just shift some of their allocation to bonds and to equities and take their cash out, plow not, it into real estate? <laughs> not bonds. Uh, so the framework of this market has been set by the central bank for a decade, and really global central banks for a decade. So. They've set the interest rate environment, the corporate credit rate environment, and then it enables the PE to expand like last year. So you saw the 10-year go from a three yield to 1.8 yield, and that enabled PEs to expand as they did. Um, are clients comfortable? They are discomforted by what they're seeing politically, globally, 
they're, they're discomforted by a lot of the headline news that comes across their desk. But I think everyone understands that econ- the economy in the U.S. is on solid footing. So, yeah, sorry. So basically, we make them unhappy, Paul. Basically, yes. that's the bottom line: is that we are driving any sense of discomfort. Otherwise, balances. people are people are feeling great. Exactly. So, Michael, I mean, as we think about asset allocation, given what we saw in 2019, how are you suggesting your clients allocate their capital? I mean, you know, we're hearing more and more about maybe emerging markets, maybe go a little bit more out on the risk turf, maybe even think about some alternative investments. How are you kind of thinking about it? We are at the midpoint in our risk. So if you had spoken to us in December of 18, when everyone was concerned about a recession, we didn't see one coming, and we were actually building our equity risk at that point. We've pared some of that back in these recent months, and currently, at the end of the month, we're going to begin to buy some equity protection. So we have huge embedded gains. Every, anyone who's owned the equity markets for the last five, 10 years is enormous embedded gains. And rather than take them, we own quality risk assets, quality corporations. Um, we'd much rather buy hedges to sort of diminish any of the, if there are any. What's kind of driving your, what I would sense is a growing sense of caution? Valuation. Valuation, okay. Yeah. So what's your sense of what's going to cause some sort of sell-off, some sort of decline uh, that would encourage you to start buying protection? Well, we try to do it in the contrarian uh, so if you think about the direction of markets, we generally will spend money when markets have done very well. We will monetize those in periods of weakness. So we, we do it sort of as a contrarian way to build in protection, embedded protection. In the so portfolio. it's not actually a call on markets. It's, we're not trying to time markets, no. Are there sectors here, given, given where we are in the economic cycle, given what performance we saw in 2019, are there some sectors that you're more bullish on versus less bullish on? We, in terms of value, if you were looking at an industry, the energy infrastructure industry is still quite cheap, um, and I think that's garnering some focus among strategists. Mid-cap in general, and sort of as you go down market cap, you, you see some inefficiencies, and, so, and that's actually a place where active managers and great stock selectors can add a lot of value. Large cap, uh, excuse me, large cap growth maintains itself as an expensive sector, we would have said that three years ago, two years ago. <laughs> so it just has had an, a momentum that is unending. Uh, but so those are the those are the extremes within the U.S. We'd say. So when you came in here, Michael, you said that uh, a lot of the valuation in the equity markets is predicated on the idea that interest rates are going to remain low for a very long time, right? Yeah. And uh, I was thinking, well, what if inflation expectations are too low? What if the economy does solidify and we do start to see wage pressure and we actually see bond yields rise, uh, even just you know 25 basis points, 50 basis points? How much does that affect equity valuations? Well, the only metric that the S&P does not look in the 90 plus percentile expensive in is relative to the 10-year treasury. So that's the one you know, area of justification for the current uh, multiples. The, we see that as a plausible outcome, that rates, as the global economy recovers, there is pressure on rates, and they begin to slowly normalize. And that will just not enable anyone to justify multiple expansion. So then it will really come down to earnings growth. If earnings growth don't, doesn't you know, reach 10%, and we think there's a chance it couldn't, that's 5%. Think of it as a leverage of 5% revenue growth broadly across every corporation in the S P 500. That's you know, sort of a two-to-one general rule of thumb the, they're just the combination of those twos uh, really we see as a 
not overly exciting equity, forward-looking equity market. I know you did spend some time with emerging markets early in your career. I did. Any opportunities there that jump out at you? Yeah. So emerging. So the consumer in emerging markets has been and remains a great story. And I'll, I'll highlight a, a country that I lived in, which was Brazil. The, the base rates have been falling in Brazil for several years as inflation fell. And what that enables is the knock-on effect for the consumer, someone buying a TV, a car, just the financing abilities that just was never, really was never there in the 25 years since I, I lived there. So there are valuations combined with structural changes that are very meaningful. There's a huge amount of money in Brazil that has been reinvested in overnight rates for years. 30, 40, 50% of portfolios were just there because it compounded at 7, 8%. That is now, you know, three, two and a half, three, and in real terms, it's even less. So, um, <clears throat> when you look at those markets, there are big structural changes, but you also have political issues in many of these countries, in regions as well as countries. Uh, valuations are attractive, but we create a, uh, a threshold above S and P 500 that a country has to be at a discount, a substantial discount, in order for us to really allocate capital there. We do have exposure there, so. We, we, are, we think that it's at that point, but it's not screaming as inexpensive currently. Right. Michael Tiedemann, thank you so much for being with us. Always great to get your thoughts on the market here. Chief Executive Officer of Tiedemann Advisors overseeing more than $20 billion uh, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Well, technology continues to lead this market, continues to be a topic of M&A activity, IPO activity, uh, lots of big themes driving technology forward to get a, a taste of kind of what we can think about for 2020 and beyond. We welcome our good friend, Ted Smith, co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors, uh, based in New York City, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Ted, I know you guys came out with a 2020 Outlook report. What are some of the key takeaways that you guys are out talking about? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Paul and Lisa. Great to be here again. Um, we're talking a lot right now just about the incredible amount of capital that's still available in the market for technology companies today, whether it be private equity firms who continue to raise capital and deploy significant amounts of capital, as well as strategic buyers who are out there with large balance sheets looking to do really interesting transactions from an M&A perspective. So despite the fact that the markets continue to reward technology companies with valuations that are um, perhaps unsustainable, but certainly are stratospheric and have been for some time. We think that deal-making is going to continue uh, for 2020. Deal-making uh, on the M&A front, right? Yes. Uh, and I'm wondering whether you think it's going to be specifically within the tech space or whether it's going to be broad-based. Is there a place where you're seeing a growing amount of interest? We certainly, we focus as a firm on the technology arena, so right. that's where, where we're coming at this, uh, this uh, set of opportunities. More broadly, yes, we still see deals happening uh, in related spaces, healthcare, energy, other places where technology is leveraged uh, to the benefit of sort of the core investors or the core buyers. And how much is this being paid for by debt versus uh, equity buyouts? I and mean, how, how is it being financed? Uh, there's, first of all, the, again, these large private equity firms obviously primarily write equity checks themselves, but they, they use leverage as part of the overall buyout scheme. In tech, we've seen uh, a significant uptick in the use of debt by these buyout firms and by the companies themselves that operate in technology. There's simply more debt available for these companies 
companies, an explosion in the private credit markets and the availability of debt capital to companies and to uh, and to private equity firms. So a significant amount uh, of debt being used today. So Ted, you know, private companies, you know, the historic exit for private equity is an IPO or sale. Um, IPOs in 2019, we think about the Ubers, the Lyfts, and some others, weren't that successful at all, I'm an understatement. Do you think we'll see more M&A as an exit uh, vehicle versus IPOs in 2020? I think we've moved into an environment where, at least within the technology space, it's going to be fairly muted from an IPO perspective. One of the interesting stats about 2019 in the IPO class versus 2018 in tech is we had exactly the same number of tech IPOs. There were 38. Um, and yet the amount of capital that was raised by the IPOs in 2019 was 20%, 25% greater than what was raised in 2018. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a narrowing of the IPO window for larger and larger deals. And then to your point, Paul, what we're seeing on our side is a greater and greater focus on the likely exit for these companies being an M&A event. Although when we talk about last year's activities, it was also marked by some serious potholes here, in particular WeWork. Yep. Uh, I'm not calling that a tech company, so you can hold hate mail. <laughs> um, but I, I am curious how much uh, that incident and some others that just didn't perform that well has sort of colored uh, the valuations uh, or at least uh, provide a little bit more skepticism, uh, injected a little more skepticism into markets about how high to value companies that they're buying? I mean, is that is that something you're seeing? I think there's a there's an element of that. But I think it's important. It's probably a, a slightly oversimplified view if you look at the class of 2019 IPOs. But if you separate them into more enterprise-oriented technology companies versus more consumer-oriented technology companies, the enterprise tech companies did actually quite well when you think about companies like Zoom Communications and others that, that had great Because uh, they entrances. made money. They make money. They didn't actually burn cash. Uh, they, they, these companies do make money or, or have a path to being able to make money in the fairly short term. I think the challenges around WeWork and some of the other IPOs that actually did happen last year were in part around these business models where it feels like you're, you're just continuing to light a, a pile of cash on fire with respect to your lack of profitability, but also a repudiation of these founder-dominated governance structures where the market finally came out and said, enough is enough. We're not going to allow you to have both of those things. You can't have a business model that appears to be not profitable for the foreseeable future and invest so much power in a single founder or a single team. We have to have some ability to control the direction of this company as public market investors because that's what the governance structure is supposed to be there for, which is to protect us, not the founders. Is Airbnb going to go public in 2020? I believe they will. And that's going to be a big deal, right? Should be a very big deal. Right. How will it perform? Uh, I think it'll perform better than some of the worst performers last year, and I'm not trying to damn them with faint praise. I think it's a different company with a different long-term business model. They've obviously got some challenges they need to sort out with, re with respect to protecting both the folks who put their properties for a listing on there as well as folks who rent through Airbnb. But I think long-term, that's a much better business model than some of those who suffered in 2019. Really interesting. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Ted Smith, co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors, uh, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.